0: Welcome to the Steady Anchor Podcast. We are a Christian, creedal, and confessional podcast highlighting theology and practice in the local church. We are part of the Doctrinal Discipleship Ministry and members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. I'm Luke, and welcome to the show. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 5, 22-23 Welcome back to the Steady Anchor Podcast. I am Luke, your host, and today we are finishing out the last of our series on the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter 5. This has been a series running over several months now at this point, and I'm excited to bring it to a close. Um, first things first, just a quick recap of where we've been so far. I want to say also hello to some of the new listeners we've gained in the last couple months. For instance, a growth of listeners from Spruce Grove, Alberta, Canada. Hello, citizens of Spruce Grove. As well as recapping some of the places we've been with this series. Um, We've gone through, over the last few episodes, uh, an analysis of the different fruits of the Spirit. These characters, these attitudes and characteristics listed by the Apostle Paul as what the spirit of the living God produces within us. These are concrete manifestations of God's sanctifying work within us, in our hearts, in our minds, and our lives. So far we've gone through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. Those are our last couple episodes. If you're just joining us now for the first time, I'd encourage you to go back from the beginning of this series to get a better handle on how we've been progressing through this. We've been doing this study kind of as a word study format, trying to be careful not to use any illegitimate means of importing too much specific meaning into a given passage. It's important for our study of the scripture, our exegesis, and our our language studies that when we use uh, studies of particular words in the Bible, we understand the context and the diversity that terms are used on occasion. So we should not try to shoehorn in every possible meaning of a given word into every possible circumstance that that word is used. Uh, An example of this, for instance, we've mentioned before, is the word sozo, which means to save. some contexts, it means a a physical, literal salvation from injury or death. Sometimes it refers to a spiritual salvation, a new life given through faith in Christ. There are many things... uh, There are many... places that you could go seriously wrong by importing that understanding of salvation in a spiritual sense or in a physical sense and importing that into every use of that word save or salvation um So as we go through, when we talk about love and peace and faithfulness and gentleness, and in this episode, self-control, it's important to realize that in these individual contexts, there is a diversity of use and nuance that we have to be sensitive to. But we should also see that there's a benefit in looking at all of these verses and the great picture that they paint in order to have a more comprehensive view of what this looks like, both in the character of God himself, in the spirit who is producing this fruit within us, and in how we should reflect these fruits as followers of Christ, those being conformed into his image. So, and again, this is meant to be a study of grace. This is meant to be something that encourages us in our Christian walk. It's meant to drive us deeper into our knowledge and study and love for the scriptures. This study is not meant to burden us as believers, as if these are things that we have to force up within ourselves, that we have to produce by sheer willpower. Rather, these are things that God in his grace produces within us, and that He often works through the regular means of grace, through prayer and fasting, through the scriptures, through worship, through gathering together with the Lord's people, especially on the Lord's day. These are things that the Lord uses to produce these fruits within us, but These are not the result of our own efforts, of our own work. Yes, we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who works in us both to will and to work. So this, again, should be an exercise of grace, not meant to add on a burden to give us a greater to-do list. Rather, this should help us to reflect on the self-control exhibited by God in Christ and how we should live in gratitude in response to what he has done for us. So as we begin today, this will be a little bit different than the previous episodes because of how infrequently the term self-control is used in the Bible. It may be a prominent theme, especially when referring to fighting sin and uh, producing the fruits of righteousness, but there's a a number of different words that we translate as self-control into the English, and none of them are used very frequently. So instead of doing what we have done in previous episodes and tracing out uh, one or two or three specific words throughout the whole of the Bible in a chronological or biblical uh, study, like from beginning to end, instead we're going to go through a couple of these central words and look at the individual context in which they are used. So the word that the Apostle Paul uses here in the Greek for Galatians 5.23 is egkratea, which is a self-mastery, a self-restraint, a self-control, or a temperance. It refers to the context of mastery, of having dominion over oneself. This is a concept that would have uh, synonyms and parallels in uh, Greek philosophical and ethical writings, stuff that you would see like in the Socratics or in uh, the Stoics, especially the Stoic philosophers placed a great emphasis on self-control, on dominating your passions and desires. On desires, but that's not exactly the same context and meaning that Christian literature has when it speaks of self-control, because we know as uh, from all of the scripture that God made us as physical human beings with desires and emotions, um, these are part of how he designed us. And so even after the fall, when our emotions and our experiences have been corrupted by the weakness of the flesh, by the fallenness of the world, and by our own temptations and sins, um, our emotions are not an inherently evil thing that we just have to squelch down and have mastery over. Rather self-control is the idea that we should not be not that we should not be slaves to our passions that we should not be under the mastery of the temptations that come over us in this life that when we have an urge to satisfy our physical desires or when we have an urge to uh, commit a sin through the means of temptation we are not to give in to those things rather we are to have mastery over our desires, that sin is crouching after the door with its desire over us, but we must have mastery over it. So that is, the the idea of self-control is not to burden and bear down our emotions and desires as such, but to have mastery over temptation and control over sinful lusts and desires. I hope that's making sense. So here are a couple differences Uh, different instances that it's used through the scripture. This word, ekratea, is used only four times in the New Testament. Uh, It's used first in Acts 24, 24 through 25. This is the apostle Paul witnessing to the governor Felix. It says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. It's interesting that the three things that summarizes Paul's presentation of the Christian faith, it is righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. That Christ is the one who has risen, who has ascended, and who is coming again to wage judgment. And he will be the just judge, who holds us accountable for the sins that we have committed. So either we will be found in him at the resurrection or we'll be condemned by our own lack of self-control. In 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, we see two instances of this word used. For this very reason, Peter writes, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So, in the beginning of Peter's second letter to the churches, he gives an exhortation that one of the things that should supplement our faith, that should adorn our lives as believers, is the exercise of self-control. It's not enough just to know cognitively the truths of the faith, but that also deeply affect the way that we live— so if we, are living self, uh, if we are living without self-control, that we know that giving in to these lusts and temptations are wrong, that the sexual immorality, that uh, gluttony, that drunkenness, that all sorts of immorality are wrong, and yet do not exercise self-control over those things, then we are not living as followers of Christ should. We are not reflecting what God has called us to as those who have been united to him by faith. Another Greek word that's related to this is eggratuomi. It's the verbal form of that uh the the previous word. It means to exercise self control or self dominance. It's used twice as well. First in first Corinthians seven, eight through nine, Paul is writing here about marriage, about it's not a necessity to get married. In fact, Paul has a very high view of singleness since he himself is single. He has been gifted with that to not have. Uh, some external ties that keep him from uh, moving around and pursuing missionary efforts as he does. But he writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So this singleness is in ministry and in life. It's not something that we should ever impose upon people who have not been called to that. There are specific individuals who do not have that same desire or the same need that that God has gifted them with singleness, that they would be content as single individuals for their life so that they would have greater freedom to pursue full-time ministry. But this is not ever something that we should force upon people. One of the great errors made in the Roman church is to force singleness upon those who have not been gifted with singleness. And so that ends up leading into all sorts of problems, and forcing unbiblical expectations upon people that have not been commanded will always have consequences. We also see this word in First Corinthians 9, verses 25 through 27. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to... to receive a perishable wreath, but we have an imperishable inheritance, it's implied. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. He's writing here of self control as a Christian using this analogy of an athlete who in his day, the Olympians, the original Olympians, who would be dedicated and disciplined athletes, who would self, who would exhibit self-control. Uh, you don't see athletes today going and binging at, um, at getting 900-calorie Starbucks drinks every morning or going and uh, eating out at Cracker Barrel every afternoon. They have a specific regimen of discipline. Maybe they are able to eat a lot some days, but they're also very careful about what they eat and how they eat and when they eat and how it fuels their body. They have a disciplined regimen of exercise and training to get them prepared for the contest. So also we as Christians, we exercise self-discipline, we exercise self-control so that we may be fit both in our physical bodies, yes, but primarily as followers of Christ, as those who have been called to a high and holy calling to exhibit the character of Christ in the way that we live, and to show the truth of the gospel by our actions, that we truly believe that Christ is the risen Lord who will come back to judge the living and the dead, and that he has given us his spirit so that we may live a holy life as he has lived before us. So that's the analogy that he uses there. Another word is akrasia, which refers to self-indulgence. It's the opposite of self-control. It's incontinence, intemperance, or a lack of restraint. It's used by Jesus in Matthew 23, verses 25 through 26 in the woes against the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! first clean the inside of the cup and plate that the outside also may be clean. That word self-indulgence there is this idea, a lack of self-control. Though the Pharisees had this external conformity to the law and the perception of righteousness, inside they were still given over to the passions of the flesh, and they were still giving themselves over to lusts and evil desire. In 1 Corinthians 7, He writes, do not deprive one another. This is in the context of marriage, telling married believers that they should not withhold sex from one another, because this is one of God's good gifts. He says, don't withhold from one another, except perhaps by agreement and for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul here is explicitly against loveless and sexless marriages, our marriages were designed for intimacy of body and soul and of mind, and this includes the sexual intimacy that God designed as a good gift for a husband and wife and lifelong covenant union. And so sex is not a bad thing. Our, our desires for that sort of fulfillment are not inherently evil, and in the context of marriage, we should encourage these things and enjoy these things. It's only outside the proper context that these lusts and desires become wicked. Lust is an improper sexual desire, and for anyone to desire sex with anyone who is not their spouse, they are committing spiritual adultery. To dwell on such temptations. Another word, akrates, related to the previous one, again lacking self-control, powerless, inclined to excess. We see this in First Timothy or in Second Timothy three verses one through five. But understand this, Paul writes, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, and without self-control. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. That really is uh, the height of this lack of self-control, the fact that people become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They are given over almost animalistically to their base desires because they think that the lusts of the flesh will be greater satisfaction and reward than the love of God and relationship with the one who created us. Another word in the New Testament is sophrosune, soundness of mind or sanity, or, and also the moral sense, self-control or sobriety. 1 Timothy 2, 8-11, I desire then that at every place men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul is warning them, both the men and the women, against a lack of self-control, that the men should not be violent and angry, but should control themselves, that they should pray regularly together and individually. And the women should not incite uh, uh, proud thoughts of themselves by by dressing themselves in these gold elaborate outfits and stuff, but rather they should be adorned with modesty and with self-control, adorned with good works as is appropriate for women in the church. And it's it's a sticky situation. It's a sticky subject. Whenever you talk about modesty, people get way up in arms because some of the ways that it's been abused or some of the ways that the idea can be kind of loopholed into actually not meaning anything. But this is a biblical command. It's not an absolute prohibition, at least I don't think so, that you should never wear braided hair or never wear jewelry or anything. Rather, the intention is warning against having this outward uh, glory, so to speak, having this outward display of, look at how beautiful I am, look at how glorious I am, look at the, the luxury that I live in, instead of being adorned with true godliness and with obedience in the faith. He says again in First uh, Timothy 2.15, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That is another sticky verse with some difficulty in interpretation. Another reason why we shouldn't say sozo always means to save uh, in the spiritual sense. Like, uh, There's a lot of debate over this verse that we can't really get into right now, but it's worth studying more. Another related word, sophronimos, sorry, uh, 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This, I think, directly reflects Paul's teaching here in Galatians 5, that what the Spirit of God produces within us is not fear, it is not disobedience, it is not cowardice, it is not intemperance, but it is power, love, and self-control. And then one example from the Old Testament, matzar is the Hebrew word for restraint or control used only once that I could find in Proverbs 25:28 which says a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without its walls. More literally, that it's a man who lacks the ability to rule over his own spirit, who does not rule his own spirit or mind or life. This is an example of the foolish person who does not control himself, who is given to fits of anger, who is given to lusts and adultery and idolatry and and whatever his heart may desire against the law of God. He's like a city that's broken into and left without walls. He's defenseless because he is led captive to whatever temptation comes his way. So in closing, what are the ways that we see this self-control in the character of God and in Christ incarnate? Will we see in Christ that He never gave into sinful temptation or lust in all of His life, though He was tempted in all ways that we are? He was yet without sin, as the author of Hebrews writes. That our Lord, though He had uh, this sin, the uh, He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had the capacity for true temptation. Nevertheless, he, being God in the flesh, could not sin. He could not fail the mission that the Father had placed him on. And so, uh, this is important for us to, to remember that Christ, though he had an experienced temptation as we do, he did not give in to temptation. God, as well, through the Spirit, gives us a power over our temptations and the lusts of the flesh. And we do not fulfill these, these commands to self-control and obedience perfectly, but it should be our desire to, to gain a mastery over these lusts of the flesh, of the body and the mind, that next uh, week, next year, whatever it may be that we can look back and see a growth and a progress that we no longer give into the same sins to the same extent, to the same uh, frequency that we used to progress is always a good thing that should be desired. Even though we will not attain perfection in this life, we should always be looking and striving to move forward in the faith. And so we see this example in Christ, that he was one who never gave into temptation. He exhibited perfect and ultimate self-control. In all things, not only did he resist sexual sin and temptation, not only did he uh, resist drunkenness and debauchery and uh, and and the desires, the sinful desires of all kinds. He also exercised self-control in love and mercy and forbearance against those who were persecuting him. And any time Christ, by his divine right and authority, could have called down legions of angels or, or being God in the flesh, these people could have just been snapped out of existence. And yet in the grace and glory of Christ, he did not call these angels to rescue him from the cross as as they the crowds mocked him to. Oh, see if angels will come down and rescue him from this cross, they said. But instead, in his forbearance and his kindness and his self-control, he suffered the punishment that he did not deserve in order that we may attain to a life that we did not earn. And so, as Christ has exhibited self-control, we should live in light of that, desiring also to please our heavenly Father through controlling ourselves, not being slaves to the lusts and desires of the flesh, but rather to be slaves and servants of Christ, who has made us not just servants in his household, but also brothers and sisters by the graciousness of adoption. So as we conclude today, let us be self-controlled, as servants of Christ, as, as friends and brothers and sisters, as members of God's body, the church, as parents and as workers in whatever field we may be in, let us exhibit self-control so that people may, may see in, uh, in our lives a self-control, a not being given over to whatever temptations and whatever offerings there may be to indulge in the lust of the flesh so that we may glorify God in our bodies, so that we may, by our lives, adorn the gospel and hopefully open a way to actually present the truths of the gospel, of repentance and faith, of true life through Jesus Christ himself and Jesus Christ alone. That is our goal and aspiration. And a good example, I've been studying a lot recently for a paper that I'm doing in seminary. I just presented it this week on pornography and pastoral ministry how pastors can, can deal with this, this heinous sin, this wicked addiction that is clinging to so many who profess the name of Christ. And, um, so I wrote a lot about these statistics of pornography use in the general culture and in the church, how it's affecting the hearts and minds of so many people how it's damaging ministries and churches, how it's destroying marriages and families, and how wicked this sin truly is. And I know that I was given over to the sin for so many years, but by God's grace, it is no longer a sin that clings to me, and freedom from that is available to us. And so I, I wrote a paper on talking about the statistics of porn use, of its prevalence in the church, about a survey of what Scripture says relating to sexual immorality and adultery, um, especially Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, that uh, if one commits lust in his heart with a woman, that he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, and so I also survey a number of the ways that people—, uh, people give uh, suggestions, the different models that people use to fight against pornography and summarize how those can be used well in the ministry. So um, if you or someone you know is struggling with pornography, I would urge you strongly for the sake of your own health and soul to forsake that sin, repent of it, confess it to your pastor and to other godly believers, people who can hold you accountable and lead you through these things and point you back to the gospel of Christ. So as we end today, um, a, a special announcement—one that's that's sad to say—but our next episode will be the last episode of the Steady Anchor podcast. Um, if you know me personally or follow me on social media at all, you'll know that my circumstances have changed a lot recently. Uh, I have been, for this year, a student at Mid-America Reformed Seminary, but I am also having a child. Uh, My wife Jess and I, we are having our first coming in September, and so I'm also transferring to be working full-time and doing seminary online part-time through Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm hopefully stepping into a greater role uh, serving in my local church. And so with everything changing, I just want to get my priorities straight, And as much as I have loved producing this podcast over the last almost three years now, um, I just need to prioritize my time well. And listen, I, I can't imagine there's too many die hard, always, you know, chomping at the bit to get a new episode fans of this show, but there are are plenty other shows where you can get the same or higher quality content, especially you look through the Society of Reform Podcasters, the network that I'm a part of. There are so many great shows in there that produced such high-quality content that are entertaining, that are informative, that are God-glorifying. And and so I don't think the church is going to be <laughs> going through any difficulty when this podcast shuts down. But it's a little bittersweet for me just to say goodbye to this, um, this outlet that I've had for the last few years. Um, but it's it's for the best so that I can have a greater focus on the people who are actually in my lives and divert some of this energy and study towards the people who I actually know, who I've covenanted with, and to my family as it continues to grow. So our last episode coming next month will likely be the last episode of the Steady Anchor podcast. Just a recap on everything that's gone on through these last almost three years, and a big thanks to everyone who has been a part of it along the way. So I will see you next time. Until then, love God, love his church, and love your neighbor as yourself. God bless. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Steady Anchor Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. You can also follow us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Steady Anchor Pod. Or you can subscribe to us wherever podcasts are found. If you're looking for more like-minded content, you can check out the Society of Reform Podcasters at reformpodcasts.com. If you'd like to support this podcast and the website and wherever else we're doing, you can find us on Patreon and give whatever your heart allows. You can also find our website, where we post more content, articles, resources, and reviews. That's doctrinaldiscipleship.com. The opening song is Rock of Ages, performed by Nathan Drake. Thanks again. We'll see you around.